We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Is everybody strapped in? Do you want to go faster? Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, the big news of the day. And man, this is a win, win, win. Uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says his government is reversing its green belt land swap decision after uh, the poo show that turned into and won't be making changes to the green belt in the future. The Premier said he broke his promise when he decided to open the green belt for more housing development. Quote, it was a mistake to open the green belt. It was a mistake to establish a process that moved way too fast. This process left too much room for some people to take uh, to benefit over others. It caused people to question our motives as a first step to earn back your trust. I will be reversing the changes we have made and won't make any changes to the green belt in the future. Uh, the premier made the announcement during a press conference uh, earlier today in Niagara Falls. Here's a compilation of clips listen to this i made a promise to you that i wouldn't touch the green belt i broke that promise and for that i'm very very sorry i pride myself on keeping our promises it was a mistake to open the green belt it was a mistake to establish a process that moved too fast this process it left too much room for some people to benefit over others. As a first step to earn back your trust, I'll be reversing the changes we made and won't make any changes to the green belt in the future. Because even if you do something for the right reasons, with the best of intentions, it can still be wrong. I'm here to acknowledge it was a mistake. I'm here to apologize uh, to the people. And we're going to move forward and continue building homes. Wow. How is that? Now, only if we can get the prime minister to do that. Uh, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, Is everybody happy? Everybody must be incredibly happy now. Well, I know I'm surprised uh, more than uh, anything else. I'm surprised he went into it. But again, for me, for me, the fact that this we've even had this debate, as I've said many times, what it has exposed is that the uh, 20 to 40 years worth of land that has not been developed, that should be developed instead of the green belt, but hasn't been because of the same nimbyism and the same environmentalism that we're not by uh, the same people that don't want you building on the green belt, don't want you building anywhere. So what the green belt discussion has done is it's focused on why we have a housing shortage with this other land, the alternative land, rather than the green belt. And now you watch. He can stand up and say, hey, no green belt. So get your asses building and get building now. 
And I just think this is an incredible reversal for the uh, for the premier. I think it's uh, uh, other than, you know, not going here in the first place. I, I, I think it was a brilliant play for him. I think at the end of the day, now there is going to be so much pressure on people who are not in the green belt. But uh, who are outside the green belt, but are in that area, the white belt, whatever you want to call those 20 to 40 years of alternate lands that were never used. Now they have to get built on. So, uh, you know, I, I think this is an amazing turn of events because the housing will get built. And it's going to get built in areas that people don't want it to get built. It just won't be on the green belt. Uh, here's some uh, social media we got from Victoria Mancinelli from Leuna. It takes a lot for anyone, let alone an elected official, an elected official to get up and say, I made a mistake and I apologize for it. Good on the premier. Now it's time to move forward and work together and build a resilient path forward for Ontario, including all levels of government coming together, putting ideology aside and working towards a solution to build uh, and uh, for the betterment of our communities. It's time to build and Leuna members are ready. Now, Maureen Wilson, Ward 1 Councillor, said, now reverse the forced, unwanted, and unnecessary blowout of Hamilton's urban boundary that will pave over prime agricultural lands to uh, 2,200 acres of sprawl. That ain't going to (laughs) happen because anything that is now outside the green belt is game. And Again, we didn't need to go into the green belt unless none of this other land was even going to be developed. And that's why we were ending up there. And then everybody took advantage of the, of the process, took advantage of the opportunity. So what this is going to do by sealing off the green belt, it's going to put a ton of pressure on councillors, on municipalities to get this done and to get it done with the land that they have. This is a huge turn of events for this whole discussion. Not on the green belt, but on building housing that we've neglected to build. The left and the environmentalists have neglected to build for 20 years of liberal rule prior to the pandemic, and then eight years of NDP and Justin Trudeau uh, on the federal scene. Look where we are now. Isn't that amazing? Hey, you know, the great thing about this time of the uh, year is the fall fair season has started and the Ancaster Fair starts today. And like this one, uh, like many, this one's been going on for a bazillion years. Paul Gibbons, vice uh, president, sorry, executive president of the Ancaster Fair is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are things faring at the fair? Are you getting all set up? Are you ready to roll? Yeah, we're just about ready to go. Uh, this is our 173rd fair. So that's wow. A big number. So that is a big number. Man, are you planning for the 175th? We're always planning. <laughs> yeah. Never ending, you know. If, so if you think about 173 isn't that big a number in today's world. But think of going back to 1850 until today. Think of the hundreds of thousands of man hours and volunteer hours that have gone into creating this fair. That's a big number. Mm. 
And, you know, you go back and you talked about 173 years, go back to that period, you know, the 1850s, what have you. Uh, this, the you know, fairs like this were as big a deal as they are today. They were where people gathered in, in agricultural displays and such. What is the same? What has changed over the years for the Ancaster Fair? You know, of course, technology and mechanization has changed farming totally. But what hasn't changed is the attitude of the people that come together and they put their blood, sweat and tears and expertise into creating a fair every year. And, uh, you know, it's a great thing to do for the youth, the shows that we have for the youth, the school fair. Ancaster is the largest school fair in Ontario. And, you know, we need to keep the youth interested in agriculture for our future. You know, I remember that even as a kid that, you know, whether you were, you know, growing something in your in your backyard or whether you were, uh, uh, you know, a pumpkin or, or what have you, or whether you were participating in a penmanship contest. It's great that this is still so interwound with the schools. Yeah. And, and you know, come here to the fair. $13 for an adult ticket. There's something different every day. Where can you get that kind of value? The midway, the food trucks. The entertainment, the uh, we have bandolinis going up and down Main Street. You know, we've got the demolition derby. We've got Merritt Hall with all the arts and crafts in it. We've got Old McDonald where you can see the animals and learn about agriculture. Got the school fair, like I said, it's the number one school fair in Ontario. Um, we've got Heritage Square. If you like old iron and you like to see the old tractors and old equipment, come there. Um, We've got, I, did I say the demolition derby? Um, no, but you can, yeah, you can say it twice because it's worth it. It's a big, it's yeah. a big draw. It is. A, it's our biggest draw. And then we have the horse shows, the cattle shows, sheep and goats, the poultry show. Uh, we have llamas. Um, it, there's something for everyone here. Are it's people still as, every day. are people, Paul, still as interested in the agricultural component of the fair? Because that's obviously where it all started, that and showing you the latest in technology and such. But, you know, obviously we're so far removed from that now. It's a great experience and a great way to to experience what it's like on a farm. I think people are probably in some way more interested than ever because a lot of people are away from the farming roots of Mm. 1850 or 1950. The people that are coming here, they're very interested, and, and they ask a lot of pretty cool questions. So, all right, Paul, so give us the logistics. It's on now. Uh, where, when, all that stuff. Okay, we're at the uh, corner of uh, Trinity Road in Wilson. Um, it starts today at 5 o'clock, and it goes till Sunday night. And uh, it's the best bang for your buck when it comes to entertainment. we got some great Canadian entertainers coming. So they'll be playing every night. It's just, like I said earlier, there's something for everyone. Whatever you want to do or see, it's here. All right, the Ancaster Fair, September 21st through the 24th. You can find out more online at ancasterfair.com uh, and uh, all of the information on uh, how you can get there. Ancaster, rather, ancasterfair.ca. Paul, good luck with this year's edition of. Hopefully the weather holds out for you. It's looking pretty good. Okay, thank you. All right, that's Paul Gibbons, Executive President, Ancaster Fair, the 173rd edition. Think about that. And, I mean, we talk about this at Hammerhead Trivia all the time after the 5 o'clock news. 1854. 
I mean, that's what we're talking about on Hammerhead Trivia. Imagine, that's how old this fair has been around, like many of them, so many of them in the area. Get out and enjoy. All right, there was uh, some eyebrows raised when a while ago uh, the uh, Toronto Rock announced they would be playing at First Ontario Centre. And then, of course, everybody's wondering what's happening, what's going on, when is this all supposed to start. Let's bring in PJ Marcanti, CEO of the Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, and here now. PJ, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Thank you, Scott. All right. So give us a bit of an update here, PJ. Uh, many were surprised when the Toronto Rock made the announcement, uh, perhaps ahead of you guys. Uh, I'm not sure. But can you sort of uh, give us a bit of an update and where we are and, and how you're moving forward? For sure. So we were delighted yesterday to finally be able to delegate to Hamilton City Council and give the public a, a proper update. We had been planning to delegate for the past few months, so we were finally able to get on the agenda. And we shared with council and with the the, the public at large uh, the the HUPEG plans in, in partnership with the Oakview Group. We were delighted that yesterday Tom Pistori, who is the president of Oakview Group Canada, OVG Canada, who is working with Tim Laiwicki, their founder and CEO, uh, he shared the, the visions of the arena project with council. He also clarified uh, some of the information related to the Toronto Rock and the Bulldogs. And he did share that in early 2024, we will be starting some of the arena renovation in the undeveloped concourse. There is in excess, I'm I'm not going to quote the specific number because I'm not sure what it is, but it's tens of thousands of undeveloped square feet of space uh, on the street level mm-hmm. concourse that OVG wants to get started with. And they shared that once the lacrosse season is done, that there will be a full arena shutdown. And the target opening date as of right now is October 2025. So we we are looking forward to, to getting to work early in the new year while still accommodating the Toronto Rock lacrosse team. And then once uh, the season's done, uh, the full building shutdown where there will be wonderful new investments in the suites in the uh, food and beverage amenities, uh, club spaces, uh, and uh, an exterior facade. So lots of wonderful things to look forward to within the renovated arena. Um, and uh, and we're delighted that we're finally able to share that with the public. So at this point, it looks like Toronto Rock is the last, uh, they're the last event or series of events in, in the arena. Then from then on, it starts. And OVG issued a clarifying statement after the Toronto Rock announcement last week and did share that there may be a few shows uh, throughout the rock season as well. So we're still in the process of determining what that might look like, but we still do hope to get to work. And then, yeah, once the rock season is done, that will be, that will be the, uh, the the signal for the, the full shutdown. Uh, But we can confidently say that uh, OVG's construction team and uh, planning team have been working uh, in, in collaboration with, uh, with folks in the city's planning department and, uh, and so we've got a, a great set of drawings from our architects at BBB. They just finished up OVG's Baltimore renovation, uh, which um, uh, their, their arena opened April 2023. So BBB and the OVG uh, construction team are, are ready to rock in Hamilton. And, uh, and they're eager for, uh, for that. And the Baltimore renovation that they just completed, it was a $220 million U.S renovation and uh, and it, very similar to Hamilton's uh in that it's uh, it was a, a facility around the same age as as First Ontario Center 
And so they feel excited about this project and it being a flagship flagship project for OVG Canada. Uh, it was interesting. And, you know, once you get through all this uh, stuff that we're talking about now, then the fun part starts where you get to talk about what's actually going to happen. You were in some of the stuff I've read, you were talking about the concourse. And I remember being in in cops way back when and I thought, wow, there's a lot of space not used here. Uh, can you give us some sort of hint of how that concourse area might shape up or what it's going to look like? Oh, absolutely. So so there's there's both there's Two concourses, the ice level concourse and the street level concourse. So the, yeah. if, if people are familiar with the uh, those York Boulevard, uh, st- that steep set of stairs that, yep. that, you know, brings you to York. So on the other side of those stairs is a lot of square footage that the public has never seen. And it wraps around um, it wraps around the entirety of the of the arena. So. Think of that massive uh, upper level concourse. There's there's a version of that right underneath it, and then there's the ice level underneath that. And so OVG and and Hugh Pegg's new renderings it shares uh, what will become of that space. So there will be uh, more club spaces similar to what Tim Hortons Field has with their club section. We're going to be adding some new boxes and suites. So right now the target is to increase from 10 to, I believe it's 19 and to also have some loge seats. So it's a bit of a, a common, uh, common area uh, premium space where you can congregate and, and there's, you know, more bars and, and, and uh, you know, lounge amenities. So there's going to be a lot more of that in addition to just general uh, bars and food purchase terminal areas. Um, and so the the footprint, uh, the footprint of those types of spaces will uh, increase substantially, and 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 that's where the experience will be night and day from what it is today. Uh, and we're excited to share that with the public. And and Oakview Group are experts at this. This is the they've in the last three years, seven arenas have um, been opened around the world, and OVG did all seven projects. Uh, and invested over four billion dollars in capital. So they're the best in the world, and and partnering with them was worth the wait uh, because this is an opportunity where we'll be able to do it right for the next generation of Hamiltonians. And uh, and we are you know grateful that the the public has been patient with us uh, because this will be something that everybody will look forward to and be proud of. We know certainly the buzz around uh, Rogers Center, the Sky Dome, when it was, and it's only still at a first phase, I guess, but when that nude area was done towards the back and just a better use of space and such, I mean, it created quite a buzz. It's quite a cool area to see. Can we expect something like that? Can we, when we walk into this PJ, will we go, holy smokes, this is amazing. Absolutely. And, and we're excited. We shared with, uh, with council yesterday in our PowerPoint presentation, some of the renderings uh, and and visuals of what the what the plans are and what it's going to look like and and when we have the so in in, in October uh, Hugh Pegg and Oakview Group are planning on having a dedicated arena press release press conference actually at the site and we'll show the before and afters so share we'll share this is what this space looks like today this is what it's going to look like post renovation and so we're really excited to be able to share all of that great information and those visuals and the vision with the uh with the uh community uh because it will bring that same buzz that people have experienced uh at the old skydome at the rogers uh rogers center there where yeah those great new spaces i think it's the corona bar and the td kids yeah. area i was at a game uh last month with uh, my son and some friends and uh, they loved it, uh, and so the 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 uh, adults could enjoy a, an adult beverage, and the 
kids can enjoy some cotton candy and Coca-Cola. So it was a great mix that they uh, did there where they were able to accommodate to both families and and uh, and older fans. It was great. And we believe that the same type of amenities will be uh, will be in the new Hamilton Arena, First Ontario Centre. All right. I got less than a minute left here, PJ. Uh, that's inside. What about outside development around the area? What will that do for that? Uh, there's been lots of chatter about residential, blah, blah, blah. What, what about outside on that block? So we're, we're looking forward to launching a new website called the commons where we intend to have a district visioning exercise with the public on this new website. We'll share what the engagement sessions with the community will look like. We're, we're hoping to work through the uh, BIAs and solicit feedback and get get comments from people from across the city. And the vision is to make downtown robust and energetic. And there are, as people know, tons of condo towers uh, and cranes uh, being developed with cranes, you know, helping develop them right now. And Hupeg will be investing in more residential assets that will that will be around the the facility. Uh, but we look forward to working with the public on what do the public realm investments uh, around the facility need to look like to really make this active? What does the wayfinding look like? And making sure that the connective tissue uh, that connects the arena to the concert hall, to the convention center, art gallery, city hall, to restaurant row uh, down on King William and up along James Street North, we want to make sure that it's one cohesive uh, experience uh, where people feel comfortable in coming downtown and where there's things to do before and after concerts and and, and sporting events. Uh, so we're looking forward to building out the district with more residential assets and really making sure that we're connecting to all of the other great assets in downtown, both uh, arts, culture, hospitality, tourism, uh, assets that uh, that really make the downtown vibrant and lively again. Very exciting. PJ Marcani with his CEO of the Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. Update on what's happening at First Ontario Centre. Man, when it's done, we can't wait. PJ, good luck with all this moving forward. Thank you, Scott. The reason I love doing Hammerhead trivia is because Hamilton is such a historic city. It has so many historical elements, and this is one of them right here. Uh, back in the days of the ambitious city. 125 years of making hydroelectric power coming up September 24th. Victor Jervek is with us, Nikola Tesla, educational, and with us now. Vic, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. So talk about Nikola Tesla Educational. Well, Nikola Tesla Educational was is a charitable organization that was formed to educate and inspire uh, kids, and particularly uh, using Nikola Tesla's technology. There's a lot of uh, cool things about Tesla, and kids get uh, really inspired when they see some of these de- demonstrations. But we had to bring Tesla to the city in order to, to do that, and uh, we were actually surprised when we discovered that Hamilton was the first major city in all of Canada to have electricity. And that dates back to, as you mentioned, uh, uh, 1898 was when power came to Hamilton. Uh, give us a little bit of a history lesson here and, and, and tell Hamiltonians how they're a part of all this. Well, uh, there is a group of five Johns, and the, the real brain behind this, I would say, was John Patterson. He discovered that uh, Tesla's technology that could transmit power over long distances. In 1894, he went to the uh, Edward Dean Adams Power Generating Station in Niagara Falls, New York, while it was under construction. And he quickly said he wants this to come to Hamilton. Uh, Americans, however, would not sell him the power, 
And so they they were at a dilemma. They wanted to build a power generating station on the Canadian side. They couldn't do that because the Americans already uh, secured the water rights for another station that they were building a few years later. So uh, what they found was an alternate location was, was at the Q Falls, which is in St. Catharines. Mm-hmm. But the distance was 35 miles to bring power to Hamilton. It had not been done. It was a question, can it be done? Uh, even the power uh, didn't make it from uh, Buffalo, from Niagara Falls to Buffalo, which is only 17 miles until November of 1896. And yet, in August of 1896, according to a periodic journal, it uh, says that the uh, cataract men, the five Johns, consulted Tesla. Tesla reviewed their plans, approved of their plans, and said, "You will be successful to transmit 35 miles." He said, "You'll even, you can even transmit 500 miles." Mm. So, on his say so. They started building the uh, the Q power generating station uh, with no proof that it can be done other than Tesla's uh, strong support for it. And uh, I've toured the power station at Niagara Falls, which is a great new exhibit that uh, explains a lot of this as well. I mean, and, and at this point, Hamilton was the electric city. I mean, this was a big deal, wasn't it? Oh, it was a humongous deal. Uh, not uh, when we say when I say humongous. It actually powered Hamilton's secular industrial revolution. Uh, Hamilton already had running water, had a good railway system, and a safe harbor. But what was the key ingredient? And that was power. They ended up having the cheapest power around. And as a result, all the major industries started moving in, starting with Westinghouse, who started building his plant in 1897, Mm. before power arrived. He wanted to be up and running as soon as uh, power was available. Uh, and people were kind of skeptical about this at the time. They were scared of it. Well, of course they were. But part of the reason they were scared of it was uh, Edison and his DC electricity uh, ra- waged a fierce battle against AC, Westinghouse, Tesla combined, trying to scare people in saying that AC electricity was dangerous and DC <laughs> yeah. was better. And for that reason, like even Murdoch Mysteries, they have shows on it where they show they were electrocuting animals. Uh, to yeah. show that AC electricity was a dangerous thing. So tell how tell everybody how you're celebrating this anniversary. What you're going to do? Well, on the 24th, we're having the festival, uh, Tesla Electric City Festival. This is our sixth uh, festival. On in that regard, we're going among the things that we're going to have is we're going to have a layout of the history. We're going to be we're going to walk people through the history. We're going to explain that whole history piece, how uh, Tesla fits in, how. Uh, the five Johns did this. This was an incredible accomplishment. Uh, it, November the 12th was the grand opening, and it was said to be this is going to be a red letter day in the annals of electrical histories because that's exactly what it was. It was an incredible accomplishment. So when people come there, everything is free. There's a, a train ride for kids. There's uh, uh, EVs will be there, so you can check out some of those uh, new cars out there. Talk to owners and see what what they think of it. Uh, Inside, there will be robotic teams and outside as well. So there's going to be lots of things to engage kids. Uh, Home Depot is coming with their workshop. So they're they're going to have kits for kids and they're going to be building uh, things at the the fair with them. So uh, as I said, everything is generally free. If you want to buy uh, something to eat or if you want to buy a souvenir or something like that, that's what's going to cost you. But other than that, uh, this is all about educating and informing people about Hamilton as the electric city and that we were such a leader in the early 1900s. Most of the 
communities in Hamilton formed in the early 1900s. It, prior to that, it, Hamilton was predominantly like an Anglo-Saxon background. But mm-hmm. after that, we became a multicultural, multi-ethnic community because people from around the world came to take these jobs up in Hamilton. Uh, it was quite a development, and uh, it's not hard to see this. Just drive down Barton Street and look at when those churches were built, and you'll see most yeah. of them were built in the early 1900s. And it's all happening at the Hamilton Museum of Steam and Technology. Uh, 125 years of electricity, hydroelectricity in Hamilton. Good luck with this this uh, coming up, and fascinating topic. Well, definitely, and hopefully we can maybe even do a whole show on this because there's so much material on this stuff. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am good. Uh, yeah, it's a quiet news week, isn't it? Nothing going on anywhere. <laughs> well, it's amazing because normally when we chat, it's all federal stuff. And I know it's yeah. going to happen. We're going to start talking Greenbelt. And this is a good day for the prime minister because we're not talking about what's going on in India. And that whole debacle. <laughs> so, uh, never mind Alberta. They're they're going ahead or going to pursue. Uh, that's pursue, right. Uh, the CP, uh, their their own independent pension plan. Maybe. Their own anyway. pension plan. All right. What's happening to this country? Uh so uh, uh, let's start with the Greenbelt decision being reversed. Uh, Doug Ford coming out apologizing, said they made a mistake. Um, blah blah blah. Acted too hastily. All of that stuff. And now that is sealed off. Uh, my point in all of this is this seems like a win 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 simply because it has drawn so much attention to the alternative lands that were never touched and were protected by the same people who are arguing about the green belt and now the game's on they got to build on those lands there's that i i mean uh, you do have to wonder though scott because it, it, it appeared after steve clark resigned was fired whatever that this was heading there so why did it take however many more weeks or days right um I think the Premier, as you say, has done the right thing now. But my, oh, my, what a lot of political carnage uh, in the midst of it all. Uh, you know, second minister fell yesterday. Um, I don't know if it'll be the, the win, win, win he, uh, he would like it to be. That's going to take uh, some time. But he at least politically uh, potentially have stopped the bleeding. Because also earlier today, did the integrity commissioner say that the, they're not now going to look at the yeah. um, the the Ford family for the uh, the wedding reception stuff? So mm-hmm. he's gotten some wins today, but boy, oh boy, have they come at significant cost. That being said, uh, why, you know, my question all along was why even go there in the first place? Yeah. But again, it, it did really push forth the discussion about why we're in a shortage with alternative lands that can be built on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't know uh, the answer to that other than, as you say, there may only be uh, one obvious path to go now and the pressure will be on. To go there quickly because every government in this country, including the federal government, has um, people very riled up and worried uh, about housing. So not much time to waste. They need to get houses built where they can be built sooner rather than later. 
Many pointed to municipalities and the red tape yeah. and development and so on and so forth, uh, so forth. This now puts added pressure on them to make this happen, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, if you have a space that has been identified, you don't have the regulatory burden and the bureaucratic headache, then you got to move. you got to move quickly. All right, so let's talk about uh, that. Was over. I thought that we'd be talking about this all break. Where do you think this is going to go? Do you think this is going to? It's still going to hurt him politically. Um, look, it was hurting him politically, certainly in our uh, in our abacus polls that we were uh, looking at. Uh, you could see that he when he dropped seven points in popular support. That's huge, and and it was quick. Um, he's going to have to do some work to win back people's trust. You'll remember even before this and around some of the other challenges in the government, there was a bit of a sense that um, among the, the broad Ontario public that Doug Ford favored insiders and, and favored his cronies. You know, he's got to address that. This didn't help that. Um, but he should be able to win back some points, one would see, should see, among particularly conservative voters who weren't very happy with this particular move. All right, let's talk about uh, a new political party, a centrist conservative <laughs> party. Is this going to go anywhere? I thought his name was Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Scott, 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 you and I are of a similar age. And if you can tell me a time when a major, uh, whatever the name of the major federal conservative party was, uh, didn't have a breakaway faction or someone biting at its heels, um, then I would tell you, you don't know your Canadian history. Um, so look, this is a, a long line of historical examples of parties that have popped up. Some have been significant, like the Reform Party, and made a real difference in terms of the dynamics. There have been others, like the new one, the other new one, the People's Party of Canada. Remember that one? Mm. It hasn't won any, it's run a couple of elections, hasn't garnered more than 5% of the vote, no seat. So this one, um, look, certainly there are people that aren't happy with Pierre Polyev, uh, but Pierre Polyev has something that Aaron O'Toole didn't have, that Andrew Scheer didn't have, and Stephen Harper did, and that is momentum right now, and the sense that the Conservatives are pretty well-placed to win. And as long as uh, Pierre Polyev has that, this uh, Center Future Party, whatever the name is. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I just don't remember it because there have been so many different names of different parties. It's not going to go anywhere right now. If Polyev uh, fails, meaning he doesn't win the election, then this organization and others will have life in them, I suspect. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Suma Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, covering just a mere small percentage of what's going on today. <laughs> Tim, uh, enjoy the day. Be well. Thanks again, as always. Take care, my friend. Bye. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Wow, what a day it's been. Lots going on today. Uh, and uh, with the Greenbelt stuff, it's uh, pushed aside the story of the Prime Minister uh, of our country in India, obviously dusting it up over accusations uh, from Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons the other day that they have credible evidence that the, uh, the government of India was involved in the execution of a Sikh extremist in British Columbia, and obviously that has sent the relationship of the two countries uh, spiraling. To talk more about all of this, Randolph Mank is with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, president of Mank Global Incorporated, and here now. Randolph, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm very well. Hope you are too, Scott. So, Randolph, obviously the, the latest reaction, a travel advisory to Canada for those traveling from India, which Canada, of course, has rejected. What does this mean for Canadians, even if it's symbolic, or, or is it more than that? Well, it's, uh, it's a security issue from their point of view. They're worried about threats against, uh, against Hindus that are, seem to have been emanating from the Sikh community here. But uh, from our point of view, it's mostly the Indian diaspora that's making the, uh, the trips back and forth. So, you know, it will affect some tour- tourism, but not a whole lot. What about the thousands that are already living here? Should they be, I mean, you know, say you can't travel, but yet there's so many living here? Well, that's the, that's the contradiction, isn't it? There, mm-hmm. there is this kind of intercommunal violence that uh, crops up from time to time. We've seen some recent episodes of it, but it's got quite a history in India that seems to have calmed down there, but not here. Your take on this announcement by the Prime Minister and where it has ended up, India's reaction, is it one of uh, of innocence or guilt? Is it one of cooperation? Uh, where, where do you see this going? None of us really know. And, and you know, I was as surprised as everyone that the prime minister went public with this and it's hard to assess whether that was just because he was so frustrated after his uh, visit to india for the g20 meeting where he seems to have been snubbed and and uh, there were very uncomfortable conversations with prime minister modi his counterpart or uh, whether there's a, a deeper frustration in the actual mechanics of the investigation itself so we have to wait to see what kind of evidence is actually going to be presented against uh, Indian agents uh, where the allegations seem to be directed. It seems in past anyway, whether it's a public inquirer or, inquiry or what have you, it's hard to get clear uh, evidence of any kind. So where does that leave the prime minister moving forward? Well, that's, that's his, his problem, isn't it? He's got, mm. uh, he's got the opposition uh, asking questions of him again. Uh, he's certainly popular now among the, uh, the Sikh community out here in Surrey and in suburbs of Toronto and so on. And political pundits are, are looking at that with some suspicion. I'm more of a foreign policy analyst, so I try to avoid the, the domestic politics of it. It's pretty hard to avoid in, in this case. You know, India, if you were asked most Canadians, they would have no idea what this issue is about. What is what kind of a Khalistan homeland are we talking about? What does it mean for Canada? It means very little. We've imported this problem from India along with uh, a community that is mostly peaceful but has some radicals within it. And uh, and now here we are trying to deal with it. You know, we don't want uh, another golden temple type of incident that they had in India where you you rush with your security forces into a temple to stage a raid against a supposed extremist, and it winds up with hundreds and then literally thousands of people killed in uh, in violence afterwards. So this is a it's a tif- difficult one to manage, and uh, the government's got a hot potato. Uh, external affairs minister in India said uh, Canada a safe haven for terrorists, uh, extremists, and organized crime. Is that accurate? I don't think so. Uh, again, their expectations are a little unrealistic. Do they really expect us to go in and, and raid these Gurdwara, uh, where we think there might be some um, 
extremist activities going on. Pretty hard to do without uh, upsetting a lot of people and probably escalating the violence. So we have to pursue our rule of law, as the prime minister has said, and and people can speak freely. At the other at the other side, though, inciting violence, as some of these folks in Canada have done, is really something that that uh, we shouldn't allow. India makes a point. Was there another way for the prime minister to have handled this? The obvious one would have been not to go public in in Parliament. And uh, only he and and his team knows why he would have done that. Um, It seems like it's a bit of an extreme thing to have done. If he had kept it quiet uh, and allowed police to work with counterpart police on the investigation, which seems to be ongoing, one would look at that as the more conventional route. And having intelligence people maybe share what they know in the mix uh, could have been helpful as well. So I don't know why why he decided to go public, but it does seem to reflect some frustration on the Canadian side. Uh, will this discussion force us to get a handle on foreign interference? Obviously, uh, there was the chatter before about the Chinese Communist Party interfering in two elections uh, here and such, and now we have this happening uh, from India. Uh, clearly, we're, we're, we need to have more of a handle on foreign interference. Is that accurate? I think you're right. Uh, you know, it, it distracts from what we were concerned about with China, but it also ups the ante. The trouble is that if you start to, to see uh, interference everywhere, you can become quite paranoid. Uh, we yeah. have a, a pretty strong democratic system, and we have elections where people are free to vote based on their own interests and desires and preferences. So foreign foreign interference is actually quite limited in shaping the choices of individual Canadians, I think. So what does India need to do here moving forward? Uh, Wait for Canada to provide some sort of proof or explanation of this? I think, yes, that's that's what they want. If if you look at the the media in India, they're uh, they're quite uh, excited about all of this and quite anti-Canadian, or at least anti-our prime minister in terms of the handling of it. It would be nice to see if behind the scenes police were working with each other in the two countries to share information and get on with the investigation. Uh, But it is for us, having made accusations, to come up with some, some evidence. Are you concerned that this could create divisiveness here within the Indian community or communities? Yes. I am. This is what India says is really going on. They allege that uh, this is just gang warfare within various factions uh, in our Indian community. And of course, that's something that everybody has to be concerned about. That yes, we do have a significant Sikh diaspora, but it's within a much larger Indian ethnic population here in Canada that has nothing to do with the Free Palestine movement. Uh, a question you can't answer, Randolph. Where do you think we are a week from now, two weeks from now? <laughs> I think it'll it'll calm down, of course, because you can't maintain this kind of a fever pitch. What I hope is that the government will uh, take some measures to safeguard our actual commercial interests with India. What I don't want to see is the all-too-frequent uh, reaching into the sanctions toolkit and starting to throw around economic sanctions because that that would 
not be good for anybody, and it really doesn't fit in this case. Randolph Mank with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, president of Mank Global Incorporated, talking about the uh, declining relationship between Canada and India. Randolph, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott. All right, we're talking an awful lot about uh, the Prime Minister uh, making accusations against the government of India that it had something to do with the assassination of a Sikh extremist leader in British Columbia. And, of course, India denying that. And now, uh, and these are ongoing stories, the RCMP investigating the death of a B.C. man targeted by China, once again putting the focus on foreign interference and how it penetrates life here in Canada. Let's bring in Jeff Semple, senior broadcast digital journalist, senior correspondent with Global News. He is here now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, doing well, thanks. Great to be with you. So it's, you know, it's odd, Jeff, that we're talking about what we are in the story uh, involving India, but this has been ongoing with China. Tell us about the story you're working on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we've, we've been hearing, obviously, for months now that uh, even though in this country, a lot of the discussion and debate around foreign interference has been focused on elections, um, you know, it is dissidents uh, who often tell you that it, that's just one piece of a broader problem. And in this case, I think, you know, we're seeing the result of that. We're looking into the case of a Chinese-Canadian man in his mid-50s named Wei Hu, Hugh grew up in China. He was an outspoken critic of the Chinese government. And about 20 years ago, he left China, moved here to Canada, um, you know, built a life for himself and his, and his wife and three kids in near Chilliwack, B.C. Um, but even here, it seems he could not escape the Chinese Communist Party. According to uh, contacts of his and uh, one friend in particular who sat down for an interview with us, um, he had long complained, Hugh had, that he was being harassed by Chinese government agents, even here in Canada, that he would be followed, surveilled, said that he received threatening messages at times, which included details about his children and their locations. Um, so really chilling, awful stuff. And at one point he had told a friend of his that if anything were to ever happen to him, if, you know, if he were to ever die in what appeared to be an accident or in what appeared to be suicide, not to believe it. And then chillingly, in July 2021, Hugh died in an apparent death by suicide. And that suicide is now part of a national security investigation by the RCMP. Uh, when this all happened, what, did it seem quite cut and dry that the man had taken his own life and that was that, or were there suspicions back when? I think there were suspicions back when from by friends of his, but I think, you know, and I'm just speculating here, but the, you know, the RCMP picking up the case, um, you know, in the last year or so, it would seem might have something to do with the, you know, the constant building pressure and discussion around foreign interference uh, the RCMP, according to our sources, did what they were contacted by a witness who told them that Hugh had complained that Chinese government agents were harassing him. Uh, so now his death is being investigated. Uh, highly unusual for, you know, to see a national security investigation into an apparent suicide. Uh, and it's not clear whether police believe that he might have died as a result of foul play uh, or whether he might have been pressured to take his own life. Uh, and that is something that we have seen in, in cases past 
uh, Scott, according to experts who monitor what's called Operation Fox Hunt, which the Chinese government launched almost a decade ago, ostensibly as a way to crack down on financial criminals who'd escaped the com- country and were living abroad. But Operation Fox Hunt is also notoriously known to be used to crack down on Chinese, the Chinese government's political opponents abroad. Um, and we have seen cases, including one just recently in the United States, where the FBI laid charges against an alleged Chinese agent who, according to the FBI, uh, basically gave his victim a choice. They could return to China and face punishment for their crimes, or they could take their own lives. So in other words, we have seen cases in the past where people have been pressured to commit suicide. And certainly that is one of the questions that the RCMP is looking into in this case. How difficult is this to investigate or or even prove? Yeah, extraordinarily difficult. Uh, In this case, uh, Wei Hu, uh, we spoke by phone to his widow who told us, uh, well, first of all, that she she denied having any knowledge that he was wanted by China, uh, even though there was, in fact, an Interpol red notice from China calling for his arrest and return to Canada. But his widow also told us that he had come isolated, had cut himself off from friends, uh, no longer had a job. Um, so, you know, of course, suicide's uh, always extraordinarily difficult to investigate, but in cases like this, all the more, uh, in part because this is a, and this is a refrain we've heard many times in doing stories on foreign interference with the Chinese Canadian community, people in that community are often terrified to speak to journalists, terrified to speak to police. Often that's because, uh, they're afraid of something could happen to them here, or as is perhaps more common, they have family members still back in China and are worried that if they were to speak to journalists or health authorities, that they might be putting their own family members at risk. So, uh, this is an extremely difficult investigation, um, but clearly one that has uh, grabbed the national interest and the interest of the RCMP. Does this put more pressure on government to pursue foreign interference more aggressively? Well, certainly, I think it's, you know, we hear stories like this one and obviously, you know, the conversation about um, uh, involving India this week and allegations of foreign interference. Um, And, you know, it's incredible. You think back to this time last year, um, whether perhaps these stories would have gotten the same traction as they are now, but we've seen a real snowball effect. I think it's become impossible for the government to ignore. Hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, certainly members of diaspora communities, whether they're from Iran or China, um, I, the ones who I've spoken with over the past many months are, are feeling um are happy with the fact that suddenly these allegations are being taken seriously. Many of them felt that for so long they were ignored by police, they were ignored by the government, perhaps by journalists, and now they feel like they're being listened to because, uh, you know, these stories have really become impossible to ignore. Jeff Semple, senior broadcast digital journalist, senior correspondent with Global News, uh, investigating the death of a BC man targeted by China. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this and check out the website. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I made a promise to you that I wouldn't touch the green belt. I broke that promise. And for that, I'm very, very sorry. I pride myself on keeping our promises. He will be answerable to the voters uh, of this province in 2026. Um, But he also has to, uh, I would say, come clean with Ontarians. Uh, We uh, Ontarians want to know, people want to know what he knew and when. 
how deeply he was involved in this scandal. Uh, I'm hearing from people when I go across this province that they're not satisfied uh, with his answers about this. They're not satisfied that he didn't know anything. She's already gone across the province. He just made the announcement like an hour ago. You heard from uh, the Premier Doug Ford and then Merritt Stiles, leader of the NDP, the official opposition, uh, talking about what has happened and Doug Ford reversing his decision, deciding uh, he is not going into the Greenbelt, that that was a mistake. Uh, it was hastily made, trying to get the job done, and he will not go into the Greenbelt moving forward. This is done. It's over. It's and now I believe the pressure is on the municipalities. Now that the green belt is closed, what are you going to build on those lands that were the alternative lands that you've been sitting on for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years that have caused the housing shortage in this province and across the country? So a fascinating turn of events. I believe it's a win-win-win because... In the end, the green belt is preserved and there'll be more pressure put on the municipalities to build the houses that uh, we're going to go there and everywhere else, I guess. Let's bring in Alan Hale, Ontario legislative reporter, Queen's Park Today and here now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Man, a busy day down there today. Oh, let's 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 I, talk. I did not see this coming. I'll, I'll be honest. It was I don't was, I don't think anybody did. landed on my day. There you go. So first, let's talk about the integrity commissioner and the stag and doe uh, debacle, whatever that was about. Uh, that He's been cleared in that. Is that accurate? Well, he let's say that the um, the integrity commissioner has said that there is not enough to go on to launch an ex- a actual like full blown investigation on it. But even that uh, st- even that little report that he had had some new information for us, like. The fact that the head of the um, PC party's fundraising wing was one of the people selling tickets to that stag and doe. So you can bet the opposition parties left on that and are asking why is why is uh, the main fundraiser for the party selling tickets to a Ford family event. So it's not exactly all <laughs> roses on that side for the government today either. So, but he's been cleared by the integrity commissioner. Well, there's not going to be any more investigation about it. Okay, cool. I think the premier is definitely saying he's been cleared, but whether you whether you want to look at it that way is really a matter of perspective. Or whether you have time to look into his personal life and his stag and doe yeah, history. But anyway, I, okay, so everybody was surprised to hear the news today. I think it even caught the opposition off guard uh, a little bit. Uh, your thoughts on what has transpired? I think that this was a long time coming. Um, I was, I have been surprised by how stri- uh, stridently the government has stuck to this position with the green belt after everything that has happened. I think they, for months and months and months now, they have, big, they uh, they assumed that this was not a big issue that people didn't care, and we just we keep seeing polls that people do care, like. There was one out of like a couple weeks ago that said like 80 some percent of Ontarians are following this story. And a lot of people don't like the look of uh, having developers who have uh, ties to the government getting these uh, getting these uh, properties and seeing their value go up. It just it looks bad. And whether and Doug Ford said today that his heart was in the right place, they were just trying to do what they thought was right and that sometimes when you do, even when you have the best of intentions, you there are decisions that are just not good. And now he's apologized for it, and he says he's not going to touch the green belt again. Uh, he's made that promise before, 
as the opposition parties uh, uh, point out. And I guess we'll see if this is what does it, and then we can all finally move on from this issue. Uh, but so, you can bet we'll, we'll see what happens next week. So the green belt off the table, and I'm sure the opposition is going to try to keep that alive as long as they can, but theoretically it's done, it's gone. Does this now put a tremendous amount of pressure on the municipalities to develop the land outside the green belt that they've neglected to develop over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I mean, yeah. The, but the, the uh, municipalities have uh, been saying for uh, quite some time that it's not all their fault either. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Uh, developers will get, um, will get approvals for, um, uh, for projects, and then developers will just like sit and wait, yeah. even though they can put... Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. And Ford has talked about really, you know, coming down on developers and like telling them that if they don't move in a certain amount of time, they have to like uh, they'll lose their their mm-hmm. approvals. And maybe we'll see that that kind of attitude taken outside of the green belt. Um, so maybe they'll be pushing not, all, not only on municipalities to get off their asses, but also developers as well. Good point. Alan Hale with us, Ontario legislative reporter, Queen's Park Today. Lots of news going on at the Ontario Ledge. Alan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. Protests and counter-protesters met up at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board's Education Centre on Upper Wentworth yesterday. Lisa Pileski was there to cover what was going on. She joins us now. Lisa Pileski, reporter, 900 CHML. And here now, Lisa, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you very much, Scott. I hope you are as well. Oh, Lisa, I can only imagine what it's like uh, not only doing your job, but covering an event like this. Describe what the atmosphere was like when what you saw going on. Well, so I got to, um, it it happened basically starting at Lime Ridge Mall. Lime Ridge is right across from the Education Center, sort of. It's just down the road on Education Court. And um, you could see as soon as you got there, there were people gathering in the parking lot at Lime Ridge, kind of getting ready to walk over. And there were hundreds of people, like hundreds uh, gathered in there. So they started to march over. um, And there was actually a bunch of counter-protesters as well. Um, so So basically... We've got these hundreds of people with the One Million March for Kids, which was something we've been seeing on social media about people who say they're concerned about LGBTQ indoctrination in school is their concern. Um, And the counter-protesters who are waving pride flags and things like that. Um, So these two groups were basically facing off in front of the education center yesterday morning, and it started with this kind of big march of the uh, the the original protest group, kind of heading down education court and gathering in front of the school board office, basically saying, uh, "Leave our kids alone! Leave our kids alone!" Having signs and things like that, um, a very kind of angry atmosphere. Um, but of course, you know, they kind of marched backwards at one point, and that's when the counter protesters decided that they wanted to march forward towards the school board offices. And but of course, you know, that meant the protesters themselves had to reorganize and try and head them off. So it was this kind of weird little clash there. We had Hamilton police. There were a couple of uh, mounted units there um, kind of monitoring the situation. According to police, it never actually got violent, but there were some confrontational moments. So they did kind of uh, deploy their public order unit to just kind of keep the peace. Um, I believe Upper West 
Wentworth was closed for some period of time in the early afternoon, about an hour or so. And uh, it, did, it did eventually all kind of dissipate. But I think at the peak of this thing, there was about a thousand people down uh, or up on the mountain at that point. Did they manage to keep the two sides apart? I can just see this happening. I mean, like a train wreck waiting to happen. Yeah, no, and it it did kind of, people got close and there were some kind of, there were aggressive kind of interactions. I was just walking through the crowd, kind of trying to keep to myself, just watching everything happening. Um, Apparently there were no charges laid or anything like that and there was no actual violence. But uh, at one point, I believe there was sort of, there was the one group on the one side of Upper Wentworth and then the other group on the other side. And I guess at one point, one of the groups kind of crossed the road. And that's when there were sort of some confrontations between the two groups. But again, no charges laid and, and things like that. It it remained mostly peaceful. So where, how did this continue? How did it dissipate? What happened next? Um, it seems like it just kind of, I mean, you know, the the uh, the organization, it was meant to happen at 10 o'clock in the morning. So obviously kind of it, it reached peak at maybe 11 or so. But I think around afternoon or so, people have realized that, you know, this is, they've made their point. We've kind of done our demonstrating. We've said what we've needed to say. And then that it kind of did dwindle. But according to um, CHML's Rick Zamperin, who hosts uh, Good Morning Hamilton, he was driving by at, uh, I think, in the early afternoon, around 3, and he said there were still plenty of people there. Um, so it, it, it took a while to wind down, and, and there were a lot of, uh, lot of high tensions. Uh, disruption to uh, board offices, what's going on there, um, uh, anything like that? Um, so it, not with this particular protest. They did um, kind of have a sign on the door saying that the offices were closed for the day to any visitors. Um, right. But there was an event. There was a... Uh, a school board meeting held in June that was stormed by a bunch of people who were upset about gender inclusive policies at the board. And um, they had come in with a bunch of signs and and saying, you know, kind of speaking up uh, over the meeting. And it got to the point where the meeting actually had to be canceled because it was so disruptive. So now actually, and this is a story we've been having in our newscasts, is that the um, the Hamilton board has banned people from bringing in signs to uh, board meetings. They also have to sign in and they have to be escorted by a security guard. So there's kind of been these additional restrictions placed on uh, board meetings because there's so much controversy over over. I think it's it's a it's a very uh, divisive topic. And I think there's a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding about what's actually happening in the classrooms. And I think that's kind of led to this kind of these these tensions. Do you think this is uh, a fight of the extremes and the concerns in the middle are being lost somewhere? And I, I think in a sense, maybe. I mean, I spoke to a couple people from the protest side and um, this uh it was kind of a voice that they're, they're they were saying that they don't have any problem with people who are LGBTQ, but they don't want their children learning about, you know, sex or gay sex or anything like that, which is not actually in the curriculum. If you look, I mean, yeah. these are not <laughs> things that kids are learning about. But I think, again, this, this is where the misinformation and miscommunication comes up. They, they, there's people who don't really understand what's happening. What what is actually happening is that kids who are trans or or 
or gender diverse in schools are just getting a little more support that than they would have had otherwise, say, when I was in school. So it's, it's a step forward for kind of helping kids understand who they are. But I, I think there's some confusion about what's actually happening. And I don't know whether that's just kind of people need to actually have conversations with the teachers and and the school boards or I don't know what needs to happen. But there's there's definitely a need for education, perhaps, in this circumstance. (laughs) A little education outside the classroom, perhaps. Um, So on that note, is there going to be more effort made to try to answer some of these questions to try to clear up some of the misconception here? I hope so, because I actually was speaking with um, local trustee Todd White um, a little earlier today, who said he's he's not happy about this this new policy regarding board meetings and kind of ha- placing extra restrictions on it, because it, it really, it kind of just adds to the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage a dialogue with parents who have concerns. So I think there will be sort of effort, there might be efforts made um, at the uh, at the board level, I know this was, by the way, a staff decision, not the trustees' decision to to limit uh, who can come into the board meeting. So th- just to mm-hmm. be clear on that, this was not something that trustees decided. It was, yeah. So so I get, I don't know. I think we definitely need to have more conversations, and I think it's just people need to be more open to listen to each other because. That's always the problem that we have as a society, isn't it? Yeah, ain't that the truth. So moving forward with meetings, um, are we to assume they're going to be just as ruckus as this one was? Is this going to get a handle on things, do you think? No, I think we're going to be okay. Well, I mean, I guess we're going to have to be okay for meetings for now because they've got this new policy in place. But I mean... Um, I know that it, the hope is that it won't be a permanent thing. Um, um, Todd White did say that he'd like to see it kind of be revoked at some point and kind of go back to normal. But it's we're just at such a point where there's so many high tensions. And I guess the school board is kind of doing what they think is best for the safety of everyone involved and kind of keeping things on track. So uh, it's one of those things where it remains to be seen what happens next. All right, Lisa Pileski with us, reporter 900 CHML, covering the meetings, protests rather, and protests, counter-protests outside the uh, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board Education Center on Upper Wentworth. Man, let's come together and find solutions rather than doing this stuff. Lisa, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. I'm going to buy myself a green belt. I think it's time. All right, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show and writer. You can uh, columnist in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you are well. I, I don't know if anybody owns a green belt. I've, I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen a green belt, brown belt, black belt, white belt for some yes. people, for Herb Tarlick. But I was about to say, Herb Tarlick. Herb Tarlick, there you go, right there. Herb, you know, you got to throw in the radio stuff every once in a while. Yeah. All right. Your thoughts on the Premier's about face on the green belt? Uh, Probably predictable. At a certain point, I think you you have one or two, one of two choices. You plunge on and know that you're never going to be able to talk about anything else, and this is going to be everything you ever have to deal with. Kind of like the Prime Minister. Uh, in some cases, <laughs> no, in some cases, or you say it's not worth it and let's dump this and get on with some other things. Now he's not going to be able to completely dump it. Uh, it's going to linger around for a while, maybe for a long while, but probably you would think in some 
time frame here. It's going, things are going to move on and we'll get on to a different topic, but, um, yeah, you know what? We it's it's rare. Like what, to quote the tragically hip, nobody cares about something you didn't do. When I, I was trying to think of this driving in today, um, I was trying to think of other politicians who have acknowledged not a personal mistake, not a Bill Clinton kind of thing, but like a, a policy move. I can think of one. Who? I'll stick up. I'll stick up for Kathleen Wynne because she did come on our show and and suggest that uh, what she had done with the um, um, electricity system and increasing the prices so quickly, she did admit she made a mistake with that. All right. I think it was just too late. Okay. It had already been done. So uh, f- fair enough. And and there is uh, there's a good example. And I'm glad you brought that one up because it's going to make the next comment not seem quite so partisan, though some people will still <laughs> feel like it is. But we haven't said, well, there's been a lot of things that the federal government ha- could have taken a step back on and said, you know what, we're seeing some impacts of some things we're doing. Absolutely. That maybe we could, even if we're not wrong, even if ultimately we believe that it's the right move, we recognize this needs to be stretched out over a period of time, or this needs to be halted for now or something. Yeah. But I, I, I'm trying to think of when the last time was we have heard the federal government say. Absolutely. Any backtracking on anything, which, which only can suggest that everything they've done is the work of the angels and nothing could possibly be better than what they've come up with. That, that's an, that's an amazing achievement that there have been no mistakes made. It's interesting because Merritt Stiles, leader of the NDP, and I think the wind's out of their sail. She said, well, people aren't going to forget this. People are still going to want answers. And again, I think of the tragically hip song, nobody cares about something you didn't do. He stopped. He corrected himself and he apologized. He didn't dig the hole. He didn't do it. So uh, I don't think anybody's going to give a rat's rear end about that. Oh, I disagree. I I, I disagree. I I think those who are those, and I'll say this, I think you're right in a large way, but those who are deeply political. Those that always, those that hate Doug Ford, they're never going to like him. That's what I'm talking about. So this is, this is, this is more fuel for the fire. But for many of the people who are just sort of casual observers, I think you're probably right. And and here's the other thing. To me, this is a win-win-win. And here's why. The green belt is saved. It's preserved. But it is off the table now. Because the green belt debate has been taking uh, all the oxygen out of the room and hasn't addressed, well, why haven't we built homes over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years on those alternative lands? Oh, they're too busy fighting about the green belt to even address that. Now that the green belt is off the table, there is a humongous amount of pressure added to the municipalities and the developers to get these lands that they didn't build on for the last 20 years, thus causing the housing crisis, get them built. I think there's more pressure on that. No? Uh, pro- I think there's, I think there's enormous pressure on municipalities to get things built anyway. And here, here's the interesting part. So you've got the federal government now, uh, and the federal opposition, Pierre Polyev and the federal government, they're all fighting about, now who's come up with the plan? Did Polyev force the government to come up with this new plan to try and hurry this up? Everyone's now fighting about yeah, who's- Yeah, trying to get credit. Trying to get credit, but- when you strive to get credit, if something doesn't happen, you cannot do what the prime minister says then and say, well, this isn't a federal responsibility. It either yeah. is or it isn't. And so I think that it, it is going to be, if housing gets built, 
everybody is going to be scrambling to try and take credit. And if housing doesn't get built, everybody's going to be running for the hill saying it was their fault. It was their fault. And it's just, it's, it's politics, Scott, it's politics and it's ridiculous in a lot of ways, but you know, exactly. We can make the note today on September the 21st, 2023, we can tell you exactly what is going to be argued about on September 21st, 2024. But and maybe then at the end of the- at the end of the day, ide- ideology is what it is. And let's be honest, the left don't build. The right, on the other hand, will build we'll on your, on your mother's front porch, a 40 tower, a 40 tower store, a uh, 40 story tower. So, you know, uh, at the end of the day, we all know who the aggressive builders are and who aren't. And I think that's what we're all finding out now. We'll uh, are you out? Go ahead. All right. That's it. That's no, no, it. We'll all see. Right. We'll see what, we'll, we'll see whether the, I mean, you say the left doesn't build. They'd better. They better. Yeah, they have to now. They have no choice. The green belt's and the off right the table. Be- and the right better too. I mean, it, yeah, it's yep, got to be, yep. stuff has to be yep. built. Yep, agree. All right, Scott Radley going to continue all of this after 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word coming in from Krista. Ford's not touching the green belt today. He won't touch the white belt, blue belt, yellow belt, black belt, the zebra belt, the black and brown reversible belt. I forgot what we were talking about. 